Welcome to the aggressive life. Well, today we're going to talk with uh, somebody who doesn't need a lot of introduction. Uh, somebody who's going to, I think, help help us see things we haven't seen before, Dirt. I mean, you know, some we all like to laugh a little bit, right? We do like to laugh. We do like to laugh. And we might do some laughing today, but I'm actually inspired by the choices this guy has made that he made to go a different direction that people actually actually thought was the the smart way to go and it's ended up being incredibly smart for him his name is Jeff Foxworthy he's one of the funniest men in the entire world and uh, a guy I've actually had some personal laughs with uh, I've done two trips with Jeffrey uh, with Compassion International, which is an organization that both of us uh, are, are heavily vested in. He's got multiple Grammy nominations to his name. He's a best-selling author of more than 26 books. He's hosted or starred in five TV series. And he was a founding member of one of the most successful comedy tours of all time, the Blue Collar Comedy Tour. It's really Really good. He doesn't just make people laugh. He's an outdoorsman. He's an entrepreneur. He's a man who puts his faith into action in various ways. Let's not waste any more time with me talking about him. Let's actually hear him talk. Welcome to the Aggressive Life, Jeff Foxworthy. Um, you're making me tired. I've been busy. Uh, <laughs> I didn't. I did not know. I did not know I had did that many things. Huh. Seriously, man, you've. Uh, you, you, you're, you're an A-lister for a reason. I guess if you're on that many lists, you're going to get an A in something. <laughs> yeah, well, I remember in high school, one of my coaches pulled me aside. He said, you're one of those guys, you're a jack of all trades and a master of none. And I really think that's kind of my deal in life is, is I'm pretty good at a lot of things, but I'm not great at anything. So, Well, you know that's not true. I mean, that was... You're, you, you're, oh, here's what you're great. Here, here's what I wanted to have you, Jeff. It, it, it's not just because it's really cool to have people who everybody knows on your podcast. Everyone wants that. That's obviously cool. It is, I think, regularly about the first time we were together, you giving me the story of how you actually, you didn't say this, I'll say this, became the greatest comic to speak to an audience who was unspoken to. That was a pretty aggressive move to go blue collar, to go old school, redneck, all that thing. And and you told me how you fell into it and how you had um, kind of gone away from counsel that others give you. And I just thought, just for starters, would you mind telling that story, like the whole bowling alley story, how you got into this niche, which now seems... Oh yeah, of course. Of course, that's that's pretty funny. You might be a redneck if, but the aggressive move happened decades ago, and you you went a different way. Do you mind telling that story? Well, you know, I got into comedy when I was a kid, and I look back now, and I realize this is the gift God gave me. Hmm. I didn't realize you could make a living doing this, but as a kid, I would save my allowance and I would buy uh, comedy records, Cosby and. Um, Bob Newhart and Flip Wilson, and I'd memorize them, and I'd go to school and do them. And I just didn't think this was a real job. I thought those people had been put in that place, and that was it. And I uh, I got a job at IBM, and I was the funny guy in the break room. I was the guy that was doing impersonations <laughs> of the boss and then turning around, and the boss would be in the doorway. But a bunch of guys I work with went to a local comedy club called The Punchline in Atlanta, and they kept saying, Foxworthy, you're funnier than these people. 
And they entered me in a contest, not an amateur night. It was a contest for working comedians called the Great Southeastern Laugh-Off. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So I went home, wrote five minutes of material about my family and went back and I won the contest. My first night on stage. Won the contest and met my wife same night. I was thinking about this, Brian, the, the, the fact that the podcast is called Aggressive Life, and I've told my kids this forever. I said, to live fully, you, ne- you need to have a full, a few hold your nose and jump moments in your life. And my wife was the only person that was telling me, she, she's like, you have all this creativity if you don't do something with it, you're going to have a miserable life. And she was the only person that was encouraging me to quit my job at IBM. So I quit my job. Uh, I was making 32000 a year. The first year on the road as a comedian, I did 406 shows and I made $8,300. Um, but I was kind of finding my voice. And I remember in that first year going to New York and guys were saying, yo, Jeff, I don't want to hurt your feelings, right? But you got to lose that stupid accent you got. Take some voice lessons. And I'm kind of (laughs) laughing going, well, where I come from, you have the stupid accent. (laughs) So I decided this is the way I talk. I'm going to talk the way I talk. And as I was traveling around the country, people like, and and I I was always talking about, oh, dadgummit, I don't get to go deer hunting this fall because I'm on the road. And so... It kind of became a thing. They would always kid me and go, oh, Foxworthy, you're nothing but an old redneck from Georgia. And I was playing in Michigan, and they were kidding me after the show about being how big of a redneck I was. Well, the club we were playing in was attached to a bowling alley that had valet parking, valet <laughs> parking. And I said... If you don't think you have rednecks in Michigan, go look out the window. People are valet parking at the bowling alley. And everybody laughed. And I went back to the room and I thought, you know what? I know what I am. But apparently a lot of people don't. And I wrote 10 ways to tell how you might be a redneck, never thinking it was going to be a hook or a book or a calendar. I was just trying to write stand-up. And I went back and I tried it the next night. And not only did everybody laugh, they were pointing at each other. And as is kind of the way I work, I thought, well, if I can write 10, can I write 30? You know, if I can write 30, can I write 100? And I got to where I had written, I don't know, uh, about 300 of them. And I started shipping them to publishers. And I got turned down by the first 14 publishers I, I sent it to. And the 15th one said, hey, this is kind of funny. He said, how does $1,500 sound? And I was scared to answer him because I thought he was asking me for $1,500 and I didn't have it. And he was like, no, 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 we'll give you $1,500. I'm like, oh, well, you got a deal then. And uh, I remember saying to him, I said, how many books do you think we'll sell? And he said, oh, I bet we sell 5,000 of them. And I think that first book sold like, Four million copies or something. I mean, just crazy. None of us saw it coming. But I had kind of found my voice, and I was doing the job that I was created to do. I don't know why I can do it. I can just do it, Um, you know, probably like a musician. I mean, I think we're all 
born with these gifts. Some people are great at taking care of old people. Some people are great at working with rocks. Some people are are great with horticulture. You know, I could write jokes. I don't know why. I I could just do it. Tell me about the process of, quote unquote, finding your own voice. Well, you know, we're all influenced by people that do what we want to do. And I tell young comics this. I, I said, talk about the things you know about. Talk about your life. Don't look at somebody else and try to mimic them because it's not going to work as well. You've got to be true to yourself. I remember I'd probably been doing stand-up for two or three years, and I was still kind of struggling with, you know, what's my style? Is it slow? Is it fast? Is it... and Jerry Seinfeld said, he said, you know what? He said, I think you just do it every night for 10 years and all of a sudden you have a style. And he was right. I mean, it's almost the Malcolm Gladwell thing. You do it for 10,000 hours and you become pretty good at it. Yeah, I find it a a really important phrase, finding your own voice. I think I think... Yeah, my my day job, as you know, is is preacher slash pastor. That's my day job, and I find that when I look at other people who communicate for a living, I think the most similar and inspirational um, genre for me to draw from is stand up comedy. I don't. I think it's it's closer preaching. Good preaching is closer to stand up than it is to motivational speaking. Than it is to teaching in a classroom. Than it is to. I, I just I just find I'm inspired by it, and I think that is the that's a phrase that for, for sure is true of comics, but I think it's also true for people who want to be preachers who are preachers. There's finding your own voice, and you you can get an A in seminary in homiletics class, or you can get a C, which is what I got in seminary in a homiletics class, uh, because I was trying to figure out my own voice and not just do what the professor told us to do. Um, But people want to hear you be fully you in whatever, on whatever stage you're on. You agree with that? Would you add to that? What do you think? I I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, I had said earlier that I'm not great at anything. I think something I'm really good at is being authentic. And I think that's your gift. And I think sometimes as speakers, we overthink or we try to present or perform too much. And what I find as a comic is people, people love authenticity. If you're if you're talking about your life and your experience, there's a connection there. It feels real. But if you're trying to imitate somebody else, there's, I think there's a disconnect there. And, you know, part of the thing of, of being a comedian is we're truth tellers. That's part of the deal of being a pastor is you're a truth teller. But that doesn't mean that you can't package it in a way that's pleasing. Do you know? You can, you can tell the truth without, without being harsh, it, 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 which is kind of my comic style, is I'm just not harsh by nature. Um, but I think it's, it's probably the same thing with you. That's why people like to listen to you, is you're authentic. Well, some people like to listen to me. 
but there's a lot of people who, who don't. I mean, seriously, you know? And, and there's people who are obviously Foxworthy fans and people who aren't. Absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's people that don't like to listen to me. And, you know, it's, it's funny, and this is a little bit of a weird jump. And I don't know if you and I talked about this or not, but I remember when I was a kid, and it was a pretty strict church we went to. So they wanted everybody, everybody to look and act and perform the same. And yes. I can remember being 10 years old and kind of wrestling with God going, God, I got a problem here because I, I really love you, but I can't do this. I'm not wired like that. I'm wired like that. And you know what? It, it took a while in my life before I realized that, that God said, uh, yeah, I know that because I wired you like that. I don't need all of this. I'm infinitely creative. So I need some of this for some people, and I need some of this for some people, and maybe I need some of this for some people. And once that kind of sunk in, it was like, oh, yeah, you you did wire me this way. And it, and it overflows even into my comedy. I mean, if you like it, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy and I'm flattered. But if you don't, I'm not offended. You know, all I'm trying to do is make people laugh. And I actually started saying this when I, when I go on stage every night. I said, and I remind myself right before I walk out, everybody I'm going to look at that night is, is going through some kind of a struggle. It might be a physical struggle, might be a financial struggle, might be an emotional struggle. Somebody you love may have done something stupid, but everybody's going through a struggle. And I think that's why my whole life I'm like, just be kind to people, have grace with people because you don't know their story. You don't know what load they're carrying, what they're dealing with. And I don't think laughter makes people struggle go away, but I do think laughter is the release valve that keeps the boiler from exploding. Mm. Um, and I think that's the benefit of it. I think sometimes when things get too heavy, you know, that's what the laugh does. It lets off a little steam, a little pressure. And we're able to put that load down for for a minute, laugh, and then we pick it back up and go on. Yeah, that's a good point about laughter and letting off steam. I've done a I've done a good bit of thinking, soul searching. Like, what's the what's the sacredness of laughter? I actually think it's sacred. You know, and when the Bible tells us that human beings are created in the image of God, I try to pay real close attention the things that we do that nothing else in all of creation does, because that's a, that's a clue as to who God is, because we're creating the image of God. And, and one of them, as far as I can understand, is is laughter. I, I just don't see examples of, on Wild Kingdom or National Geographic of lions sitting around and cracking jokes and everyone laughing. You know, we have laughing hyenas, that, but that's actually a bark. Have you thought much about this? What is the What is the sacred nature of humor? Where do you think this comes from? Any thoughts on it? Yeah, I have thought about it. I do believe we're created in God's image. And I've often had the thought, why did God allow us to have children? I mean, shouldn't Adam and Eve been enough? He had two, one of each. But I think he allowed us to have children because he wanted us to get a little glimpse into the way he feels about us. And I know as a father, when my kids are sitting around laughing, it 
it fills my heart so much. I love to hear my kids laugh. Mm. It's just such a sweet space. It's like perfume. And so if we're created in his image and he always wants what's best for us. So when we're joyful, when we're laughing, I would think that would, that would make him smile. Yeah. And I think that, that voice, finding your own voice, that's really when the humor is, uh, where, where it comes. I, uh, I think, or I heard recently Louis C.K. speaking about this, and uh, he wasn't talking about finding your own voice, but he was talking about a way in which he s- tries to encourage comics, comedians, to be the best comic possible. And one of the things he says is, is uh, don't pay attention to social media and everybody who's criticizing you out there. Pay attention to the people who actually have skin in the game, who actually buy your tickets, who actually drive to where you are, who actually park. That's your audience, not the naysayers out there. And those people, I'm using your vernacular now, they want to hear your voice. Do you think this is a transferable principle to those of us who aren't comedians? Yes. Yeah. I mean, because we live in a world on social media where there's always going to be naysayers. There's always going to be people that are hiding in the dark shadows that don't have to use their name. They're going to be critical. But why would you give a crap what they had to say? I care about the people that I'm connecting with. I, I, I care about the people that I'm invested in. And if they're invested in me, I really care about that. You know, but, the, the, but the other ones, I, I have no control over it. You know, Brian, I, I swear the greatest lesson in life is, is this. Let it go. Let it go. You know, when COVID hit... You start looking around going, oh, my word, I don't have control over anything. I don't have control over, I have control over very, very little. But actually, that is freeing because I don't have control, but God has control. And so when I take that burden off of me and go, you know what, I'm going to let it go and I'm going to let you handle this. It is, that is the key to life. Let it go. Let it go. I do that in the car. I used to be the guy that would go into a rage when somebody cut me off in traffic. And now I will be in traffic and I will, I will hold my fist like this and I will go, let it go. Do you sing the song too? Let it go, let it go. Okay. Let it go. <laughs> do, do you sing that too? No, but I'd like you to sing the whole thing. No, I want to hear it in redneck. <laughs> I want to hear I want to hear it in redneck dialect. Let it go, <laughs> let it go. I don't know how you say it. <laughs> oh, I, I'm telling you, it, it's it is so it's so simple, but I I swear that's one of the keys to life is those things that you don't control, let it, let, it, let it go. It's freeing. Yeah, I wonder when you're creating comedy, I would guess that you have to learn to be lighter than the average person because if you're living with a stressed out mindset, you're probably not having an easy time thinking about jokes, yes? Yeah, I would think so. Um you become an observer. Like, like people think because I'm a comedian, they're like, oh, I'd love to go to a party with you. Well, you would probably be disappointed because I'm not going to be loud and I'm not going to be in the middle of everything making people laugh. I'm going to be standing in the corner watching 
and pulling out a note card and writing something down. Bob Newhart said to me one time, he said, comedians are like magpies. We, we just sit on the limb in the corner and we observe. And when we see something shiny we like, we fly down and we grab it and we come back and put it in our pile. And I thought, that's a pretty good description for what we are. So, yeah, there's a lightheartedness to it. But, it, you know, for me, I, I was lucky early on because I found what worked for me. And that was I, I trusted if I thought something or my wife said something or my family did something, I was going to trust that there were other people out there thinking and saying, doing the same thing. And I just, I'm like, I'm going to trust that. If I have this thought, I'm going to learn to grab it. And, and, and I think most people have the thoughts comedians have. That's why people come backstage after the show and they go, oh my gosh, I've done that. Oh my gosh, I've thought that. Oh my gosh, I've said that. And so what I realized was I was just watching and taking a little piece of your life and buffing it up and showing it to you. And what you were laughing at was yourself. Are you an introvert? I'm somewhere in the middle. I think when I was younger, I was more of an extrovert. And I, you know, it's crazy. Like if you hand me a microphone and there's 50,000 people out in the backyard here, I wouldn't think about it. I just walk out there and talk to them. So that part of me is obviously not introverted, but the bigger and louder it gets, the quieter I get. I just watch and listen. I listen a lot. Well, because I have all girls, so I don't really have a choice. (laughs) Yes. Well, you have all girls and then your wife is, I don't know, you God's providence named her a boy, Greg. That's got to be very confusing. You got all these girls, but then you got Greg. Oh, Greg. Oh, okay. Oh, the, the story is insane. So she, she, she's a twin, fraternal twin. She was born Pamela. Her sister was Glenn, G-L-E-N-N. When she was two years old, my crazy mother-in-law saw a movie called The Best of Everything, and it had a female character named Greg in the movie. And my mother-in-law thought, Oh, that would go great with Glenn. So at the age of two, she came home and looked at my wife and said, Honey, you're not Pam anymore. Now you're going to be Greg. I'm like, how do you tell a two-year-old kid you've just changed their name? Um, We've been married almost 38 years, so I don't think about it being weird. But, you know, I can remember in the early days, I would be talking to people and I'd say, Yeah, I was in the bed with Greg last night. What? What did he just? <laughs> but now I love it. She's got a, you know, people remember her name. It's a different name. So completely. You mentioned your first comedy night out. You looked at your family. I, and that was kind of the, the basis of your bit. Uh, was that okay with your family? Um, yeah. You know, my brother has said through the years, you make me look like an idiot. And, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, but there was big laughs. Did you hear it? <laughs> uh, and my my in laws, my in laws used to get upset. They would they would go, "We heard you were on TV talking about us last night," and and I said, "Look, I'm going to talk about you, but as payment for that, I will take you on a fabulous vacation every year." And that's nice. 
then you would go on vacation with them and you would end up with 20 more minutes of material. So it became just an endless loop. I could never get out of the loop. So I was taking them on vacation all the time to pay for it. That's hilarious. Well, my kids, when they were younger in the house, I finally just told them I would pay them. I said, every time I mention you or tell us has has anything to do, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna give you five bucks. You know, and you tell a six year old that, then they're okay with anything. But then I find that uh, it gets when the problems in life, and all of us have problems. When your family starts having a problem, there's aspects of me I want to share it in real time with people in an honoring way. But of course, I just can't do that. And then. And then you just, you can't say anything because the only thing that's going on in your life is difficult stuff you can't talk about. I heard, I heard one guy say once, he said, man, I, I wasn't a preacher. It was actually a comedian who, who said, um, man, when my, when my parents die, it'll be so much more freeing because I can talk about things I can't talk about right now. Um, it's, a, it's a tension to, to bring your personal life into your craft while still honoring the journey of other people around you. Yeah. You know, I I had some really great material when my girls were little. And then they hit the teenage years. See, when they were little, they didn't realize what I did for a living. Dad, dad just goes off and he comes back. Um, like a, a bird flying away. I used to say I, I, I would fly out, gobble up money. I'd come back to the nest and vomit it up, and then I'd go away again. Um but then when they got to be teenagers, all of a sudden, they could hear a CD or they could see me on TV. And, I, and if I was talking about them, you know, then they got embarrassed and they were like, I remember one night um, I was hosting the Country Music Awards and it was right when Dancing with the Stars became popular. And so for the opening segment, I'm dancing with Lisa Renna, but I've got on this skin type sh shirt slit to the navel and, okay. you know, and I'm sliding on the floor. And, <laughs> and after the show, I get to my dressing room, I turn my phone back on. The first message on there was for my daughters going, Dad, we have to go to school tomorrow. Quit doing <laughs> stuff like that on TV. I mean, they were mortified. Uh, <laughs> But it is, I would imagine, in your life, because you want to be authentic when you're talking to people, and because that's that's part of that connection. But but you're right. You also have to be honoring to that relationship. You know, my wife has always been cool about it. The, the only time it kind of bothered her, we were in the airport one time, and these people came up to her and go, are you the one with the cold butt? And she's like, oh, quit. <laughs> talking about my butt on stage. <laughs> yeah, so. 10,000. What is 10,000? Other than one number larger than 9,999. It's a clothing company that has amazing training gear. Oh my goodness. It is really, really solid stuff. I like how it, I like the cut of it. I like the durability of it. It's really good. So if you're training for anything, a marathon, a big hunt, or just hitting the weights, you want this gear, you can get it now, and you can save 15% off your purchase. Go to 10,000.cc and enter the code AGGRESSIVELIFE. That's T-E-N-T-H-O-U-S-A-N-D dot C 
C, and then enter the code A-G-G-R-E-S-S-I-V-E-L-I-F-E to get 15% off. 10,000 offers free shipping, free returns, a lifetime guarantee. It's really, really quality stuff. Go get yourself some, and I'll see you out there. Today's podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's a product I use every day. I started taking AG1 because... I don't watch my diet too closely, but I know that I'm getting all the vitamins, minerals, and nutrients I can, as well as hydrating with 12 ounces of water right off the bat at the beginning of the day. One scoop of AG1, it's got 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens, and it doesn't taste like it. It actually tastes great. AG1 is a microhabit with big benefits. For less than $3 a day, you can take care of your health and invest in your future. It's recommended by professional athletes, health experts, and me. <laughs> to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packets with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash aggressive life. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash aggressive life to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutrition insurance. So go get you some and let's get back to the show. You're, you're a master at this stuff. I'm wondering when you go to an environment where there is a speaker, do you find yourself in constant evaluation mode? And I'll just put it into um, the the place where I am because, you know, I was already out of myself as a preacher. So let's just talk about me and people who are like me as an example. <laughs> do you, when you listen to folks like me, do you sit there and go, oh, he's breaking the cardinal rule of blah, 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 or, oh, as a communicator, doesn't he realize you can't da, 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 or if as a communicator, he would just da, 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 it would be so much better. Do you find there's, there's things like that that you observe and you want to let us in on them? There are. Um, I do it with comics a lot. Like Larry, the cable guy is one of my best friends, but the way Larry puts a set together drives me crazy because He'll do three jokes about being in Walmart, and then he'll do a story about taking his son to the golf course, and then he'll come back and do two more jokes about Walmart. And I'm like, no, you put this stuff together here and this stuff here, and it doesn't matter what I think because he's killing with the audience. Um, you know, part of what I love about the way you communicate is you do use humor. I think... Um, no matter how serious the subject matter, if you don't use humor from time to time, you lose me. Yeah. And I think the good communicators know that. I mean, politicians, pastors, whoever, if, if you communicate, I mean, even as a parent. Yep. So I think what you and I do is very similar. Similar, And it, you know, it was interesting to me because so much of the early part of my career, all I'm trying to do is make people laugh. Then I start going out and talking about my faith or talking about working at a homeless mission. And then all of a sudden I'm on stage talking and I, and I can look out and I've made somebody cry. And you're like, oh, I mean, hopefully both of them were being authentic, but I'm like, 
well, this is pretty cool because it started with laughter and then then it got serious and now we're crying. And, you know, people say to my wife, they're like, oh, is he funny all the time? And she said, no, I mean, he's funny a lot, but sometimes he's quiet, sometimes he's serious, sometimes he's sad. That's what a human being is. We're a combination of all those emotions. So if you're just funny all the time, you probably belong in a nut house because nobody's funny all the time. Yeah, well, there's also probably no depth to you if you're just funny all the time. There's, there's, there's just nothing there. Yes, but like when you and I are talking, I don't like, I don't like the surface stuff. It's like every time I meet somebody, my first question is, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? You know, what do you do? How's your, I want to know their story. I, I don't like that surface talk. I like to know the depth of people. Yeah, right. Have you thought much about these things that you do and how much they play into one another as far as enabling you to excel at being a comedian or whatever you're in? Like these, when I say these things, all the stuff that you said, made you sound, feel tired when I gave your little bio at the beginning. You've got, you're, you're really like big into the outdoorsy. Uh, we should talk outdoorsy. I think I was not a hunter when we first met. I since have become a hunter. I put a lot of time and money towards it. And do you, do you, um, do you intentionally do things like hunting to fuel your comedy or do you do things like hunting to intentionally refresh you so you are a good comedian? Or have you not even thought about it before? It just happens. I haven't really thought about it before. I mean, I started out a gun hunter, and for the last 15, 20 years, I've just been a bow hunter. But to me, it was always my escape. But as you just said that, the things that make you a good hunter is being observant. Right, so maybe it's maybe it's the same skill set, but with a different purpose. I don't know. I've never thought about that till you just said that. Well, I I think that's a good one. I didn't even think about the observant thing, Jeff. That's uh, I, I went hunting. Um, the last time I went hunting was what three four weeks ago. <laughs> Actually, I went I went with I went with my buddy Steve, who's the one who I told you this story and you sent the video about you know. I don't like mayonnaise. I'm going to have to tell that story sometime. Remember that story about, <laughs> you know, yeah. we, we might tell that story sometime. Oh, but um, he, uh, so I, I, I took him. Now, now you and I are laughing at a story that nobody else has uh, ever yeah. told. I don't know. That nobody else knows, right. Yeah, yeah, that's always fun. It's just, just about us, Jeffrey. Just you and I. Who cares about anybody else? I don't know. Dirt, should I take five minutes to tell that story? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of curious. Share it. To, I'm kind of curious to have Jeff tell that story because he said he was going to work it into his routine. Did you ever work that into your routine? No, no, I have not. But you have to tell it because you do such a good job with it. It's your story. Okay. All right. I'll get, I, I'm, I got to go all in on it or I've got to like. Sure. Yeah, I know. You got to right. invest right. in it. Do right. it right. I, I don't know how else. Would, okay. So this, I'm going to tell the story. As if it's from me, from about me, but it's not me. It's my buddy Steve Smith. It's not me. It's him. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell it like he tells us. I've heard so many times, and I told Jeff the story, and he gave Steve a little complimentary video. It was kind of cool. So uh, 
goes like this. Uh, I come home from school and I go back and, and we had this place called like Dinosaur Hill. You go back there and there's this hill that comes up and down and I'm by over there jumping over the creek and hanging out and having fun. And I climb this tree and all of a sudden I feel my bowels go, it just like clenches. I go, oh man, I've got to, I got, I got to go, I got to go, I got to go to the bathroom. And, you know, at that point in my life, I wasn't a camper. So it, it never dawned on me like you could poop in the woods. Never dawned on me. It's like, I got to get back to the toilet. So I'm coming back, try to get back to the house. And as soon as I come back, I'm about, I'm about 10, 15 yards away. And all of a sudden, that like clenches up me and I can feel coming. And now I got to start doing the robot walk. Like, like my legs are stiff. I'm clenching my butt cheeks together. And then all of a sudden, whoosh, it all comes out and I'm like, oh, crap, pun intended. So, so I go in, I take all my stuff, I throw it in the corner of the, of the of the room where my mom does laundry, and I go up my room and she she comes in, she goes, Steve! I goes, Yeah. Was this you? And she pull, holds all this stuff up. My clothes and underwear filled with filled with filled with my accident. And my mom is, she's Pentecostal incredibly religious, incredibly Pentecostal. And so she, she uses a word that she never, ever uses. She says, did you just crap in your pants? I <laughs> uh, says, uh, yeah. I said, do you, if you, <laughs> he says, he says, if you do that again, I'm going to tell your father. I said, okay, I won't do it again. <laughs> Sometime later, after school, Dinosaur Hill, same exact thing. I come back and I feel it. I start doing dinosaur walk. Again, it comes out. I go, I throw it in the in the corner of the laundry room. My mom finds it. I'm up in my room and she goes, Steve. And I come up and, and she says, she says, what did I tell you? I said, I'm going. I'm going to tell your father. So she goes and tells his dad and he comes up and he says, boy, your mother tells me you crapped in your pants. I'm going to tell you something. You do it again, you're going to eat it. Now, my dad's got two problems. One is he's bipolar, and the second thing is he's a man of his word. So when you're bipolar and a man of your word, that's a bad combo. So sometime later, a couple days later, I'm up doing whatever I'm doing, and same thing. I feel it coming. I come back. I'm doing the robot walk. I'm feeling it. It's awful. It's awful. And whoosh, it comes out. Same thing. I throw it in the corner of the, of the laundry room. And just then, just then, I hear my dad coming home. He had this distinct sound of coming home as a construction worker with ladders on his, on his pickup truck. And you could hear it crunching on the lad on the gravel and rumbling. And I was terrified. And he comes in and he hears my mom. Here my mom goes, again. So he comes up. He said, boy, what did I tell you? He said, you, you told me how, I, would, I would have to eat it. And he said, that's right. Get to the kitchen. I'm six years old. Goes in the kitchen. Mom brings in my underwear. He takes my underwear, pulls out two pieces of bread the whole time looking at me. Here's one piece, second piece. He takes the underwear and he turns it upside down, inside out, and just flops it down. He looks at me with a definitive, mm. and I'm just locked in with my eyes. Like, I'm not, I'm not moving. I'm not, I'm gonna, I'm seeing this thing. I'm, I'm gonna man up. So then he goes to the refrigerator. He pulls out some mayonnaise and he's looking at me. He opens up the, opens up the lid of the mayonnaise jar. He's looking at me. I'm looking at him. 
gets the gets the knife looking at me. I'm looking at him. He dips into the mayonnaise. He just plops it down right on top of the print. He looks at me and he and I go, you know I hate mayonnaise. <laughs> <laughs> you know I hate mayonnaise. And he goes, he goes. All right, I forgot about that. All right, all right, all right. Okay, okay. Well, well, well next time. Next time. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, my gosh. You know I hate mayonnaise. <laughs> now, why was I saying uh, this? I don't even know. I don't know why we told this. <laughs> I think I just great, wanted the joy of I making the know, greatest, that, one of the greatest comics of our time laugh. Maybe that's what it was. Oh, that that is one of... That is one of the most wonderful, because you know it's true. (laughs) You know it's true. (laughs) My brother, when my brother was little, he would get, he would get uh, preoccupied and he would forget to go to the bathroom, sometimes for days. And this was a, a point of contention with he and my mom. And so... Where we lived, they were doing construction at the end of the street. I'm probably nine years old, he's five. And we're down there playing in the mud and the construction. And as I'm looking at it, I, I had a, a an early stroke of brilliance. And me and my brother got a two by four and made a fake piece of poop. And we put time and effort into it. Like it was <laughs> tapered at one end, but Brian, it, it, not no lie, it was two and a half, three feet long, and you know, big around as the baseball bat. And we walked it through the neighborhood, snuck it into our house, and put it in the toilet. I mean, like it, it went around twice, and there's that much of it out of the water. Now he's five years old, and I said, here, "You sit here. You sit here for like 15 minutes, and you call mom to come wipe you." And he did it. I mean, he could have gotten an Oscar. He sat in there, and finally, mom. And I can, I'm on the other side of the wall listening. And I hear my mom's shoes going down the hall. I hear the bathroom door open. And I hear, oh, my word. Jay, when was the last time you went? This this is not normal. I'm calling Dr. Sievert, you know, and. She's out in the hall calling the pediatrician, and I'm stumbling out. No, it's not real. You know, we made, <laughs> we made it. it. Uh, <laughs> we made it with our hands. Yeah. Not with our bowels. We made it with our hands. <laughs> our hands. Uh, That's another thing. Like, why Why is it, like, is poop and farts? Well, yeah, poop and farts are universally funny to just about everybody. It's not so. My, my, my best friend. It is also my manager, 64 years old. He's taking care of his six-year-old granddaughter the other day, and he steps in dog mess in the yard. And she started calling him, Mr. Poop, why don't you get in your poop truck and drive to your poop house? And I, and I thought, what, what is it about this that just spans generations? That it's, you know, it's still funny. It's amazing. Anyway, back to my original point. We're talking about hunting, okay? So, so I took Steve in his very first deer hunt. We've gone elk hunting together a number of times, and I do actually. I wouldn't say what we do is elk hunting. It's actually elk hiking. What we do, it's elk hiking. You never actually see any elk, but you just see just enough signs of elk that makes you keep hiking and hiking and hiking. So, finally, this last this last elk trip, he's like, "Man, what'd it be like for us to just go and?" kill something in cold blood. 
and, and I realized, oh, I forgot. You've actually never, you've only ever hunted. You've never actually killed. And I said, look, you, you got to come deer hunting where I deer, where I hunt. And we'll, um, for sure, you're going to get a doe. No question about it. So we went out a, a couple weeks ago. And back to your observation, I kept telling him, we were in this, we were in the blind for, oh gosh, four hours. I kept telling him, hey, look, man, I know you don't see anything. I know that. So I aggravate. I'm whispering when I say it, but dude, I'm telling you, it's like these deer come from star, the starship enterprise. Like they get beamed down out of nowhere. You're just all of a sudden they're there. You know, you, you didn't see them coming. It's the weirdest things. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden it's exactly what happens. Like, what are you talking? And the four of them were there like immediately while he's still looking. And, um, to your point of observation, there is a there is a thing. I, I don't I don't think we're most of us are very good at observing. We're just good at spewing. What do you think about that? I think we're good at both because you have to observe in order to spew. Um, you know, like my other hobby, I go all over the country looking for arrowheads, uh, really you know, artifacts, really, and huh. yeah, and it and it never dawned on me until this conversation that well, that's observing too because very rarely. Is the whole arrowhead just laying there? What you see is a tip or a corner or something sticking out of the dirt. So, you know, you have to be very observant to actually find it. So, All right, that sounds like the most boring thing I've ever heard of. Oh, but listen. So you find something and then you realize I'm the first human being to touch this in 5,000 years. Ah. And whoever made this was making it to to survive, to cut their dinner up. And I'm, I always think that when I pick it up, it's like, wow. I wonder how, about the person that made, made this, the man or woman that made this, and what were they using it for? And my wife lets me go because it, it takes no money and there's no girls around and you can't get in any trouble at all. You're just walking. There you go. And, and how do you know where to go and where to look? Well, they, it's almost always near water. And you think about they had to have water every day. So they're going to be close to a river or a creek. And it's usually like a couple of elevations above that water in case that water rose or flooded. They didn't want their campsite to be in that. A lot oh. of people find them in the creeks. If you have gravel bottom creeks, they will erode out of the campsite and then, you know, through thousands of years make their make their way down into the creek but i've i've dug in like overhangs um out in the midwest where they would use it to get out of the weather i've i've dug and sifted in those i've walked fields i've walked creeks uh, a lot of different a lot of different ways to to look for them but it but it found some really cool and beautiful things that's good all right, Jeff Foxworthy, we've come to the time of our time together where I got to put you through the lightning round. The lightning round is when I give you a topic and you answer it like a lightning strike, like like no long meandering poop stories, just right to the point. Can you, can you do it? You got it. Okay. Who is your comedic hero? Jay Leno. He helps me out and so many guys out. All right, see, now it's, it is my podcast, so I can do what I want to. 
do what I want to, you would do it too if if you had your own podcast. So I I can break the I can break the rules at any moment and just say, Leno, I've I've heard that comedians have a really high high respect for him. What what is it about Leno that causes you all to feel that way? Because I think the average person who's listening to Aggressive Life would go, Leno, yeah, okay, whatever. But you're he's tapping into something deep for you. What is that? My whole goal when I started, most people get into stand-up because they want to do TV or movies. And being a comic's a great springboard to that. I always thought being a comedian was the top of the mountain. So my goal was to be on Johnny Carson. That's all I wanted to do. And Jay saw me and went back and told Johnny about me. And because of Jay... I got to be on Carson before Carson left. And wow. he uh, he's helped so many of my friends. He's very selfless. He, he loves the art of stand-up so much that if you love it too, he will go out of his way to help you. But you told me I can't give a meandering answer. You said I have to be. I know, but I don't. But then if I if I do a follow up, then you're allowed to do that. That's the rules. So you obeyed the rules, and then I changed the rules for just a moment. But now, <laughs> go back in your seat, little boy, because now go back down in your hall or go down in your like creek bed and sit there, because now we're going to go back the rules. Are you ready? Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Okay. The key to telling a good joke. Uh, brevity, cut out the fat, make it as short as possible. Good. Most aggressive mistake you've ever made and what you've learned from it. And I'll give you three sentences on this one. In my early days of comedy, when I was really poor, a guy offered me to make truck stop tapes, but he said, the problem is you're way too clean. I need you to swear in it some. And... Against my better judgment, I did it. He gave me $2,500 for every 30 minutes that I gave him. So I gave him 90 minutes. So I made $7,500 and he went on to sell, I think, 11 million of those tapes. And he made 11 million bucks and I made 7,000. Wow. And I, I looked back and went, Dang, I'm a, I, I went against, I went against what I believe. You know, to make a few bucks, and I didn't do it again. Interesting, but he had a—he must have had some kind of platform that could be leveraged that you didn't have at that time, or no? Oh yeah, yeah. Nobody knew who I was, but he had all the merchandise in truck stops nationwide. Uh, so you know, he was selling comedy tapes way before Sirius XM or you know CDs. They were cassette tapes. But it was something for truckers who were on the road all the time to listen to. And that's great. He got rich and I didn't because I sold out. Mm. All right, last one. What makes you laugh? Hmm. Real stuff. Um, My wife makes me laugh. My grandson makes me laugh. I I like to laugh. I like the... uh, the joy of life, you know, because there's there's enough of of the work and there's enough of the heartache that's all going to come, and everybody deals with those parts of it. But I think a lot of people miss the laughter part of it, and you know, we're all 
we're all idiots. I think we've gotten in the world where everybody has to be right. And when you have to be right, that means everybody else has to be wrong and nobody wants to engage in a conversation where they have to be wrong. Right. So when you learn to kind of laugh, laugh at yourself, uh, and, and I tell people that I said you're wrong about something, and the truth is you're wrong about a lot of somethings. I don't know what they are, but that's part of the human condition. When you're doing, you might be a redneck or something along those those lines. Do you get tired of that bit? Do you get tired of those jokes? Do you do you get to a point where you're just acting as you do it, or is it still, or when did it is it still genuinely funny, or when did it stop being funny for you? Well, I was I was lucky with those because I probably wrote 8,000 of them so I could mix and match them. But I probably haven't done one on stage in seven or eight years. Really? Because uh, I just wanted to do something different. I always felt bad for, for Chubby Checker I, when he had to sing The Twist every single night. And I thought he must get that hot orange juice in the back of his throat when the opening beats of that song come along. I think when you're creative, you want to keep creating. You know, I, I, I wonder that about musicians that have to play the same songs every night. You know they have to be yeah. tired of it. And so as, you know, when you're a creative person, you're, it's like Leno said, you'll go through an hour of your act just to get to those two new jokes in the middle. And if they work... Yep. Your night was a roaring success. Yeah, I wasn't sure how you'd answer that because I could, I could have made an argument for either way. I could have, I, I could understand you saying, "Hey, I haven't done any of those jo- jokes for seven, eight years." I could have also understood if you would have said, "No, it's fresh every time because I'm speaking with people in the audience who haven't heard it." Like I've given a talk, uh, well, every every weekend I give a talk, the same talk multiple times, and it doesn't get old at the end because. I see people who are benefiting from the talk. And then I have other talks like uh, Five Marks for Man that I've given at least 100 times to NFL teams, fraternities, uh, you know, whatever, whatever. At least, gosh, dirt, 100, that's probably too little. Yeah, that's probably low. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's fresh every time. And I can, I can make some twists on it. And I do make some twists on it as opposed to, come on, baby, let's do the twist, where it's just the same all the, all the time. I don't know, as a comedian, if you can have those curveball twists and it's still fresh as you're blessing people or not. Yeah, I mean, there's, <clears throat> there are ways I can do it. And, and, and you, I think that's why I like stand-up more than TV or movies is yeah. you can see the reaction. You know, it's, it, if you're doing a TV show, you're like, I don't know if this is good or not. I don't know how people are going to respond to it. But if you're on stage, you see it immediately. And so, yeah, I can tell something that I've told a thousand times. If I see you doubled over laughing, you know, then you're like, hey, that's that's what I do. That's what you paid for. And you're laughing. So that makes me happy. That's great. Jeffrey, is there anything you want to talk about that we haven't talked about? No, I just, I like the conversation, you know. Um, and I love the fact that you can be, you know, it's, I remember early on people used to say to me, well, if you're a Christian, why don't you just do Christian comedy? Why don't you just speak in churches? And I'm like, because eh, that's, 
not who, I want to talk to everybody. I want to make everybody laugh. And through that, now I can go out and do a wild game dinner where I'm putting my humor and my love of the outdoors to a bunch of guys that might never come to church, but they'll, they'll come to hear me be funny or they'll come to hear me share an outdoor adventure. And then I can roll that into a story about Jesus and what he's done for me. And so it's taken all these other gifts of my life and using it to reach an audience that other people can't reach. So that'd be awful if you were just in the church. Oh yeah. I don't want to do that. I don't Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to preach to the choir. Right. No. It's it yeah it's a it's an aggressive life but but isn't it an adventure Brian that's the fun thing about aggressive living it's it's an adventure every day and you don't have to be in control you're like let's see where this goes today it is yeah you're so right well I need we need to hang out again I I've one thing we didn't talk about which at least just give them a plug is Compassion International it's how you and I have met we have a huge huge hard for that organization and what they do. It's like, like 38 bucks a a month. You can, you can feed and educate a child in an impoverished nation until they're 18 and eventually change the course of that nation. At least that's what I believe in what's happening. So it's how you and I met doing a couple of those trips together. And, um, um, Hey, check that out. They're not paying me. There's no sponsorship fee for them. Jeff and I are just big believers in that. And uh, I would love to have you on the team to do that. That'd be great. All right, Jeffrey, if uh, someone wants to see some of your stuff, is there a one-stop shop to go and have Jeff make me laugh and whatever? Do you have a website or is there a TV show? Go ahead, give yourself an advertisement. Yeah, it's real complicated. It's jefffoxworthy.com. And you can see everything I'm doing. And I'm all over YouTube. I Because, like, sometimes I'll be going through and I'll just see me from, like, 30 years ago and... I'm like, oh, I don't even remember saying that, but that's pretty funny. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll bring that back. All right, everybody. Hey, Jeff just put on a clinic for us and a number of things. I love how he gave us the opportunity to laugh a little bit or at least understand humor. I love how he's charting a course for us of how to do things that you want to do and not what everyone else thinks you should do. I love how he's found a place to just relax and unwind. I hope there's something here that you can actually do. Something here you can apply to your life. It's called the aggressive life, not the interesting things I heard life. (laughs) Go do something different today. And we'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating, leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram at Brian Tome. Aggressive Life with Brian Tomes, a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.